Good morning, my friends. I am excited to be with you this morning. This is the last study of Revelation for the school year. We have traveled a long road together this school year, not only with the pandemic, but through these apocalyptic books. It's been a treat for me, and I hope it has been for you too. I want to say, being that this is the last of the school year, that the notes I receive every week from those of you who are studying along with me are really life-giving. Um, I get notes from people every week telling me about how this experience impacted them in this particular way. They were having a conversation with a friend or they ran into someone at a store and little moments were being triggered in their minds based on this study or they've been reflecting and they've been praying or whatever. Each of those notes means so much to me and I am very grateful for them. And so thank you for sending me those notes along the way and of course, the comments that you make to one another as we are having this study mean a lot as well. And so as always, I encourage you, if you are watching on, watching on a social media platform, that you make comments or ask questions, say hello to each other, check in with each other, because we're still keeping a little bit of distance, but I am really heartened by beginning to reopen in meaningful ways. So for those of you who are St. Michael Church members, know that we are now worshiping in person. It's still only 50% in our space, but we are singing behind our masks. We're able to receive the bread at communion and man, it feels good. And so I hope that if those of you who are in town and wanna join us for worship, will do so on Sunday mornings. It feels so good. Lastly, stmichael.org slash RBS is our website. All of this year's recordings, videos, and audio are available at stmichael.org slash rbs. And as I noted throughout the summer, we will be populating the audio recordings on our podcast for the last four years of studies. That's Luke and Acts, Genesis, Daniel, and Revelation. So it's a great opportunity this summer to get caught up on the things that we have done over these last four years together, which takes me to what we may do in the future. So I, again, thank you for those of you who have submitted ideas and suggestions and recommendations and desires about what it is that you would like to study together in the next couple years. I've kind of put all of them together and I've landed on a plan. Now this is not just a two-year plan. You know, we've done a couple two-year plans, Luke and Acts, and then Genesis and Revelation, and then I kind of shoved Daniel in there. This time, I'm looking at a three-year plan because I had a lot of people who wrote to me asking about kind of character studies. And character studies are a little harder, I suppose. Um, so what I wanted to do, I began to roll this around in my mind about what the characters really mean to us and which characters we really need to know. And so caveat here is, at some point, and maybe after this three-year cycle, I'd really like to dig into some of the smaller characters in our story. I mean, personally, there are some interesting characters, I mean, gosh, people like Ruth and Esther and others who don't have a lot of real estate in the Bible, but their stories are so rich. And even though they wouldn't take a long time to study their stories, I think they would make such a deep impact. And so I do want to study some of those smaller stories that are super valuable to us at some point in the future. But before we get to those smaller stories, I do think it would be worth our time to connect 
the biggest theological dots in the characters over time. So when we did Genesis, we covered some of the people that are necessary to understand in order to understand Jesus most fully. And so principally among them would be Abraham. But then of course, understanding Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph is important to begin to connect those big dots because they're part of creating the identity of the Jewish people, which is absolutely necessary for us to understand in order for us to best understand Jesus. So we've done the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph little stories in Genesis. The big rocks to connect to really get to Jesus include characters like Moses, and then of course Joshua as well, Aaron and Miriam as well. So you've got those characters as one big rock along the story. And then the second big rock along the story to Jesus would be the kings, in particular David. To understand the way that the Mosaic covenant works and then the Davidic covenant works is necessary for us to understand the Messianic covenant. Jesus, the Christ, how he fits into the way that the Jewish people understood Messiah, and then how he pivots in an understanding of Christology or the ideas of Christ in the world in the future. So here is what I'm thinking we will do. We will spend the next three years connecting those really big dots so that we conclude with Christ. So we're gonna do the story of Moses with Aaron, Miriam, Joshua, we will focus primarily on Exodus, but not only on Exodus, in year one. In year two, we will look at the kings. And yes, Saul is important, Solomon is important, but David's going to get the most time because it's really necessary for us to understand David in order to understand Jesus. And so that will be a look at First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings. Then, year three... We're going to do what a lot of you asked to do, which is the Gospel of John. We did the Gospel of Luke and then Acts because Luke-Acts was written by the same person and tells kind of part one and part two of a big story. The Gospel of John is a very different gospel. Mark, Matthew, Luke are called the synoptics. They tell a very similar story. John is very different. And John is the most well-developed Christology, which is really the theology of Jesus as a person of the Trinity, as a Christ, to get to John and to really understand what John was doing and how pivotal the ideas in the Gospel of John are to Christianity over the last 2,000 years, I think we need those really powerful roots of Moses, David, and then the others around their stories. So that is my proposal that over the next three years, we will do Mosaic Covenant, Davidic Covenant, and then Messianic Covenant with Jesus. I'm very excited about that. I think it's going to be really good. It is so much, well, it's easier for sure, but it's also, I think, a bit more engaging to look at characters and do character studies and the way people make decisions and how decisions impact others and the way that those others make decisions. It's, it's fascinating. And not only is the story of Moses, I think, really, really rich, but I'm gonna tell you what, if you've never studied the Kings, then looking at 
Saul, David, Solomon, and then you throw in there Samuel and Nathan as the prophets, and the way they all kind of merge and work together, oh, it is good, good stuff. And I think that we will have a lot of fun doing it. Okay, now that we've kind of previewed (laughs) the next three years, and believe me, you will find out when we're going to start in the fall, which will be after Labor Day, uh, you'll get a schedule of what we will read. The commentaries and companion books will be available in our bookshop, as well as obviously anywhere you want to buy your books. Um, If you receive emails from Meredith Rose on Mondays with reminders, then you are on our list and you will get emails directly when we restart again in the fall. If you do not get emails from Meredith, I want you to be on that list. And so you can either put your information here in the chat if you're watching on social media, or you can email Meredith, she's mrose at stmichael.org, or visit the website stmichael.org slash rbs. She's right there and you can link right to her email address. Add your name to that list so you do not miss when we begin again this fall. All right, so we had a lot of comments and questions this past week, probably because we're kind of coming to the end. Um, And a few I thought were very helpful for us to consider as we do this last week of Revelation. So first, this question comes really born out of chapters 20 and 21. So it's good for us to see it as we get into this new creation. We are asked, does John think everyone who is thrown into the lake of fire deserves this rejection by God in the final judgment. In other words, doesn't this contradict, this uh, person goes on, I'm not sure who asked this question, doesn't this contradict what we've been taught that Jesus came to save the whole world? Um, And then, anyway, they go on a little bit with a few more ideas. It's a really good question, and I will tell you that I've wrestled with this particular idea a lot, mostly as an adult. And this all began for me as a college student. So I went to a university that had a historic connection to the Baptist church. And so part of the curriculum, even though, <laughs> even though like in the early 90s, the college decided that they would allow drinking um, for students who were of age, you know, 21 and up, and the Baptist said, nope, we don't want to do that anymore. So they weren't connected to the Baptist church when I was there, but there were some ripples of having been connected to the Baptist church, and one of those was every student had to take Biblical Literature 101, which was effectively a big lecture course on the Bible as literature. Having grown up Catholic and in the church and going regularly, I could tell you a lot of biblical stories. I mean, I remember sitting there with my mom in the pews and we would look at stained glass windows when I was a child and she would tell me those stories. But they were mostly, gosh, I mean, almost entirely stories about Jesus from the Gospels or perhaps parables that Jesus told. So even though we heard scripture read every Sunday, I had never really studied the Bible in any formal way. So here I am, freshman in college, take this lecture course, and the professor begins to unpack the historic and sociological and cultural context of the Bible and when books were written and why and by whom and what they caught. Oh my gosh, it was like my head exploded. It was fantastic. All of these ideas that I had always been very shallowly familiar with, it almost went into three dimensions. Part of 
that moment begged the question for me about this particular idea. In a sense, who is saved? Now, this has been perverted in many ways. Um, we all know the kind of trope of some very, you know, when evangelicals will often say, do you know where you're going when you die? And this idea of, you know, got to get to heaven and not hell is motivational, I might say, um, but it's a little simplistic. It's not exactly what we see in scripture. This question that was asked this week is important because it brings me to a, a very foundational idea that I want to make sure we all keep in the front of our minds. In the Gospels, we see a picture of Jesus. That picture of Jesus is, unfortunately, well, and probably intentionally, vague in the sense that Jesus tells stories. Jesus rarely says, it's this, not that. He is just fundamentally not legal. Jesus tells stories, he tells parables, he gives sayings, and then we are left to our interpretation. Paul, Peter, John, and others were some of the earliest interpreters of what Jesus came to do. They did not always agree. And so as we try in the 21st century to interpret what Jesus meant, how Jesus would have us live, it's important that we anchor that effort in the person, in the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. And we don't anchor, I mean anchor, our interpretation in any of the other people who tried to interpret Jesus themselves. It does not mean that they cannot be our guides and our teachers and even our leaders in that interpretation, but our starting point is always Jesus. That means occasionally we, we just don't know. We can get kind of close. You know, it's almost like the Big Bang idea, right? You know, scientists have been trying for a very long time to get back to that moment, that Big Bang moment. They can get really close, but they can't quite get there because all of the ideas around physics kind of fall apart the closer you get to that moment. It's sort of like... Jesus is his own little big bang moment where the closer we get to the real, true, core essence of Christ, the more all of our desire to put rules and boundaries around Jesus begin to break down, right? Jesus just cannot be bound within our simplistic human need to limit God. God is not limited. And so even in this revelation, we need to understand that very fundamental idea, God is God. You know, I am. That is what God said. And we're not entirely sure. So that gets me to this specific question. When it comes to the theology of salvation, everything that I believe and I think this still holds up, which is why I still believe it, is rooted in the idea of free choice. We, as 
created by God, right? Children of God are loved by God first and completely. And then we have to have the ability to choose to love God back, which means we have to have the ability to choose to reject God's love. We must have that choice or everything else breaks down. Love is not true if love is forced or coerced or predetermined. So if love is true and if God is love, then we've got to be able to choose to reject God's love. Now, here's where things get a little interesting. For most of Christianity, the moment of our human death seemed to be the line in the sand. We had to choose to return God's love before we died or else. And here's what I want to offer you. Who says that our human death is the limit of God's capacity to save us? I certainly don't want to limit God that way. I think there is nothing that God, God is not limited by our own experiences. And so could it be that God in his infinite love receives our souls after our bodies die and we are face to face and we get in that moment to respond to God's profound, perfect love? Why not? I certainly think God's love is big enough for that. And yet even face-to-face with God, we have to be able to say no. And maybe it's the case that no one will say no. I mean, thanks be to God, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if face-to-face with the truth and the profound reality of God's love, every person says yes. But we have to be able to say no. And so when we get to this vision of those who reject God, Is that John's way of trying to work out this complicated idea? I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with saying it is always possible to say no to God. Even if no one does, it must be possible. And that's as far as I go in interpreting who these people are and why they might be burning in the lake. Okay, so let's press on. Um, Got a great question from Pat who says, The Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is this referring to the new Jerusalem? And I think, what a great pickup. We receive the Lord's Prayer from Jesus, right? So that's why the Lord's Prayer is one of those, I mean, gosh, maybe it's about the prayer that we all pray pretty consistently across all denominations because it is the prayer that we get from Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus said many lovely things that are meaningful, that, that are life-giving, and that can help shape the way that we pray or speak or act, but nothing really resonates like the Lord's Prayer does. And so when we receive this prayer from Jesus, and we have to kind of assume that it's probably what he said, and as an aside, and we'll get to this with John, Um, And I said this in Luke as well. Jesus often, it is almost certain 
that Jesus' teachings were taught over and over and over and over again, right? The way that these stories are presented in the Bible, it's as if Jesus had this one moment and gave the Lord's Prayer and that was it. Almost certainly not. Jesus likely gave that prayer over and over and over and over with all the different crowds that he taught and all the different places where he went to teach. And so his disciples likely learned that prayer. And so when it was finally written down in the Gospels, that's probably the prayer that Jesus actually said. So in that prayer, we get this moment, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In the vision of Revelation, we get this moment where the entire creation is made new and we see the new Jerusalem coming out of the clouds. And the new Jerusalem is in itself a replacement for God's presence on earth. This holy of holies, right? That cube that we talked about last week is now gigantic and in a sense becomes everything there is. God's reality doesn't simply touch earth in one single place, but instead God's reality and earth become completely intertwined and remade. What's beautiful about this idea is that it really does dovetail with this very simple statement Jesus makes in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now for us right now, the Lord's Prayer really means to me that we are able to reach for and bring about heaven on earth right now. That we don't have to wait. Heaven is not some promise of future that, and we have to die to get there. That actually, Jesus' greatest hope is that we bring about heaven on earth right now. Now, can we, of our own volition do that? Of course not. But it's with God's help, right? We say that all the time in our prayers. Can you do this good thing? I will with God's help. God is moving and working in us. The Spirit is in us. And our efforts can actually bring about heaven on earth right now. It's not for later. Part of what we wrestle with in our context right now is what it really means to try to bring about heaven on earth right now. That's what churches should struggle with, right? That's what we, as faithful people, active in church communities, should ask ourselves all the time, is how do we, in our own efforts, how do we, in our own actions, and the way that we live our lives, help bring about heaven on earth right now? In big and small ways, mostly in small ways, we all have those small opportunities to do just that. And so I hope that that's one of those questions we ask all the time. And then finally, this one's a little easy one that I just thought was funny. I showed you a picture of my previous parish um, in the Raridos, and you saw the lamb on the rivers and that sort of stuff. And someone said, what are the three angels above? I've always assumed that's the Trinity, and that's what this person guessed. And so we're going to go with that. The three persons of the Trinity, which is important as we get to chapter 22 today. So all of that is the preamble. We are finally to chapter 22. Let's jump in. Today's lesson with chapter 22, we're going to finish the last bit of chapter 21, <clears throat> and then chapter 22 is really divided into two sections. The first section being God, the Lamb, God, the Lamb, and the River of Life. And the third section, or the second section of chapter 2, is going to be the benediction, which is really the close of Revelation, which is the close of the entire Bible. So, let's start with the end of chapter 21 from last week. 
we discussed, and I've already hinted to it, the new Jerusalem coming down out of the sky. That new Jerusalem is immense, gigantic, 1,500 miles wide, deep, tall, this massive cube. I did note that 1,500 miles is almost exactly the distance between Rome and Jerusalem as you would need to travel. So what John is doing here is again symbolic, right? Do not think that there is some sci-fi weird cube that's going to drop on the earth, right? That's not this. John is effectively saying what had been the holiest place for the Jews, that holy of holies in the temple, is now gone. Remember the context here. John is writing in the 90s, and about 20 years earlier, the temple was destroyed. The second temple destroyed again, but this time by the Romans, right? First time by the Babylonians, second time by the Romans. The Jews who had come out of exile and rebuilt their temple expected a Messiah to come and defend that temple, to cast the Romans out, and instead they get Jesus, who not only doesn't overthrow the Romans, but dies. But then he's resurrected, and then he ascends, and then his followers are left wondering, what do we do now? Because obviously everything has changed. And so John is in this moment in time where the Jews have seen their temple, their blessed temple, destroyed again, and now John is saying... What was most holy will actually become God's entire new creation, right? This new Jerusalem is meant for the readers of this letter to give them the most profound, gigantic moment of hope you can imagine. It is hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of these Jews who are following Jesus who get this letter and they find out that what had been their most holy site had been destroyed by the Romans. And you know what? God will remake it and remake it in such a profound way that everything we know, the world as it was at that time, the Roman Empire, everything will become part of God's new creation. And not only a new creation but will become, in total, the holy of holies. God and earth combined into this incredible new reality. I think that's, mm, I think that's probably good enough to finish up chapter 21. Um, hold that idea of the new reality, the remade creation, because we're going to need that as we go into chapter 22. Um, <clears throat> looks like Howard says, isn't it more that the people are rejecting God when he offers the opportunity for forgiveness? Isn't it more that the people are rejecting God when he offers the opportunity for forgiveness? Not entirely sure what that means. Um, it looks like we're kind of having a semantics about is it re rejecting love? For, I'm not sure. Howard, if you want to ask that question again, will you clarify what it is you're asking and then we'll get to it. Um, okay, so now let's move into chapter 22. First section of chapter 22, God, the Lamb, 
in the river of life. Let's read together, starting at verse 1, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there any more, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We'll pause there. This is the point at which all of the promises God has made to humanity come to fruition. What we are seeing here is this incredible remaking of the original creation. Remember two years ago when we began Genesis, I said we're going to reach a point at which the creation will be remade. That's that bookend of the Bible, right? We begin with Genesis and the moment of creation in the garden that then falls apart. And we end right here. The final chapter of the final book of the Bible is a remaking of that creation. What Revelation does here is remarkable because Revelation not only remakes creation, but Revelation, in a sense, almost undoes the first creation. It's a really remarkable literary moment here as John's vision undoes even some of the fundamental need in the first creation. We see right here that, uh, mm, 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 verse 5, there will be no more night, they need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light. Remember, this is an agrarian society, okay? They are used to having to produce from the earth in order to survive. You needed clean water and you needed food. And that food came in the form of fruits, vegetables, animals. They knew they had to grow what they needed in order to sustain their life. And so what is the most important component for growing fruits and vegetables? Sunshine. Without the sun, none of that will happen. And so you get here this promise that for a first century audience would be incredible. Not only do you have the tree of life on both sides of this massive river offering fruits. Did you notice 12 fruits? Offering fruits that will produce every month. All right. What fruit tree produces fruit every month? There are seasons and cycles, and you've got to take what you can get, when you can get it, and preserve it for when you don't have it. This fruit tree produces fruit all the time. And not only do they have this river of living water and fruit that produces all year long, but they also have no need for the sun. The whole idea here could be lost on 21st century people who do not farm if we aren't careful and critical in our readings. John's not just saying, 
we're going to get some good pairs. What John is saying is that we will get everything we need. We will never want. We will never be insecure. We will never be worried again. And in fact, even the fundamental need of sunlight will no longer be necessary because in God's new creation, everything has been made new. Everything has been flipped on its head. Everything we thought we needed, we no longer need because now everything has been remade. As I noted earlier, we had this moment as well that the new Jerusalem becomes itself the new temple. I kind of feel like I've covered that. And so if you've got a question about the whole new Jerusalem becoming the new temple, ask it really quickly so that in this last half hour we can touch on it. But I want to keep moving. In the center of the city, this new Jerusalem, we find the throne of God and of the Lamb. God the Creator and God the Redeemer are there on this throne. We are now getting this prefiguring of the Trinity. All right, we've had this all the way through the Bible, right? But here we are seeing this represented in this final book of the Bible pretty clearly. There in the center, from the throne, from which all the river of life flows and gives life to the entire new creation, sits God the Creator and God the Redeemer. We will see God the Sustainer, the Holy Spirit, coming soon. Mm-mm-mm. We get in verses 6 and 7 the actual final verses of the vision. And so the vision ends, and then the actual final verses of Revelation are more of a benediction, an exhortation, and a prayer. And so let's look at the final verses of this vision that lead us into that benediction. Verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The final vision, or I'm sorry, the final verses of the vision give us the whole point of the vision. See, I am coming soon, and blessed is the one who keeps the prophecy of this book. That word coming from Jesus in this moment summarizes the entirety of Revelation. We see in this moment that John's whole point of the letter, we know this already, but it's being reiterated, is to help us know that the promise is true, that Jesus will come, and that when all of this happens, that the actual end of the story is remaking all things. That is the end of the story. It is important for John to make sure that through all of the sensational vision, they don't lose the forest for the trees. Jesus is coming. All will be remade, renewed. And we, in this waiting period, need to be patient.
All right, let's go to the last section of Revelation, the benediction. Let's read a few verses starting at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. John here, in a sense, reminds everyone how this happened. John is visited by the angel, and John's eyes are opened up. John sees this vision, re receives this revelation about the promise God has made to humanity through Christ. Now, I want us to hold on to this idea of promise. For those reading this letter in the first century, there is a very clear understanding of promise and waiting. That's what we're going to talk about in this last section. Anticipation, waiting, is very common throughout the Bible. There are multiple periods of waiting in the Old Testament that are marked as something significant. We have some smaller moments. Abraham receives his promise. Remember when we did this last year? Abraham receives the promise of God, and then Abraham's got to wait in fact, Abraham never sees the promise come to fruition, but Abraham waits nonetheless. Then we see the Jewish people, well, the Israelites waiting, I'm sorry, the Israelites waiting in the wilderness. Then you've got the Jewish people waiting in exile in Babylon and on and on. There are all these periods of waiting. Then you've got two really big chunky places where people are waiting. When the Israelites go to Egypt and they become enslaved, there is 400 years of quiet 400 years when the Israelites are, in a sense, waiting for God's fulfillment of the promise from Abraham. Again, after all of the kingdom period and the exile and the prophets, we get another big 400-year period of waiting, of quiet and of silence before the prophet's promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Waiting is very biblical. Anticipating and waiting is much of the biblical story. And let's be honest, we do not like to wait. We are not a patient people. Humanity in general is impatient. It did not start with us. We may be 21st century people with short attention spans who don't like to wait and are impatient, but my friends, what we will study next year is the most profound example of impatience in the entire Bible. That moment when Moses takes the Israelites out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, they know God has delivered them. They have literally, they saw the plagues and they saw the columns of fire and cloud and they saw Egypt 
destroyed in the Red Sea after they walked over on dry land. They've just seen all of this, and they get to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to have a little chat with God, and while he is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, they cannot wait a couple weeks without losing their mind. And they melt down their gold, and they create the golden calf, and they have this bacchanalia, and Moses comes down off the mountain with the commandments, and he's like, what's going on? Impatience is not a modern human problem. Impatience has been a human problem for all time. Here in this moment, John is reminding his readers, us, patience, anticipation, waiting on God is not only what we need to do now, but it is what has been happening throughout all time. The Bible, over and over and over again, says God makes a promise, and then you got to wait for the fulfillment of that promise. That's how it works. And so we are now, in a sense, challenged with this big idea that we've got to wait on what God has promised. John, in this revelation, says Jesus came, the incarnation of God's word, right? God, the Redeemer, came down in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We are redeemed through the promise that Jesus made, but the fulfillment of that promise, this new creation, this complete renewal of everything, has not happened yet, but it will happen. And now, 2,000 years later, almost, we're still waiting. That sounds crazy. And yet, John makes the connections to the biblical story where waiting is the silent character in the Bible. So many periods of quiet and of patience and of waiting, only to be shown that God fulfills the promises. So, in hindsight, you know it's easy to wait. Once you know the end of the story, getting to the end of the story is actually not so hard. We can look back at biblical stories and say, well, the waiting was worth it. Look at what we did at the beginning of this school year with Daniel. Daniel is a young Jewish leader taken into exile. We know that the exile won't last forever. And so as we read the stories of Daniel, being patient, being faithful, holding faith, it kind of makes sense to us because we know the end of the story. And so even though everybody else was being impatient, everybody else was being pragmatic and saying prayers to whomever, whenever, just to stay alive, we look at Daniel and we say, what an amazing example of faithfulness. Well, isn't that easy to say when we know the end of the exile story? But you see, John understands how we think. God's revelation to John is, in a sense, very real sense, telling us the end of our story. 
the story of Revelation is not contained in some weird fantasy. Specifics aside, what Revelation gives us is the big idea that is the end of our story. Through Christ, God makes a promise that what we see is not all there is. That the evil we experience, the pain and the heartbreak that we experience, will at some point be redeemed. God is working all things out for the good. And in that promise, we discover that we know the end of the story. That's really the point of Revelation. We are given the opportunity to effectively live as if we have true hindsight. The promise has been made. God will remake and renew and heal and wipe away every tear and we will be redeemed forever along with the entire creation. So now we shouldn't have to struggle so much to be patient and to wait because we indeed know the end of the story. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. We are called to see that truth. We are called to wash our robes. We are called now to resist the evil. And we're actually called to bring others in. Let's keep going. Verses 16 through the end. I'm going to skip a couple. Verse 16. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you, John, with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. Then verse 20. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. The entire Bible ends with these verses. We've heard the promise. We've seen the vision. John has reiterated very clearly that that vision is true, and we, in a sense, know the end of our story, which should help us live better. It is I, Jesus, who sent the angel to you, John, with testimony for the churches. So, John is seeing this idea that Jesus has given him this vision. Then Jesus says, the spirit and the bride say, come. So here we have the third person of the Trinity. So remember, the throne in the center of the city is God, the creator, and the lamb, God, the redeemer. Now we get the spirit and the bride say, come, the Spirit, God the Sustainer, right? So we've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit here, and the bride. Who's the bride? We are. 
The bride is the church, the bride of the lamb, the church. Here we have this marriage, this wedding narrative, once again, this metaphor of this unity that is chosen and mutual and mutually beneficial. Here the Spirit and the church say, come, so that everyone who hears them hears the invitation to come. And then anyone who hears that invitation, anyone who is thirsty can come, and anyone who wishes can take the water of life as a gift. Remember last week, talked about the woman at the well? Here we have once again this vision of water, this metaphor of water. We might miss the importance of water because we have such convenience around water. But in the story that we have, the woman at the well, she's coming in the heat of the day to collect water because she is outcast. Jesus goes to the outcast community, the Samaritans, and finds the outcast of the outcasts and says to her, if you ask, I will give you the water of life, and you will never be thirsty again. And when that promise is made, the woman immediately says, Sir, give me this water. Here, John's vision finishes, the entire Bible finishes with that same image once again. Life is predicated on water. Here, that image is used, that truth is used to get much bigger than biology. God promises eternal life. And here is this river of life. And anyone who is thirsty can take that water as a gift. Which of course goes back to this idea of salvation. This idea that everybody is brought in. We are part of the work of God now. God's promise is not just something static that we receive and say thank you. We receive and we say thank you and we go and do. We are part of the Spirit's work. You've got God, the Father and the Son on the throne and you've got the Spirit working through the church, through us to begin this redemption of the world now. We, 2,000 years later, still inherit this promise. 2,000 years later, the Spirit still fills us up, can give us courage and inspiration, and can give us the strength to go out and say to the world, come, Come, receive this gift. Come, be redeemed and sustained forever. The water that God gives will make you never thirst again. We are part of that work, of the renewal and the renewing. And then at the very end, Jesus says, Surely, I am coming soon. 
And John concludes this letter with this affirmation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then he blesses his friends, those in the seven churches of Asia, us who read this letter so far after it was written. John says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. Be with all the faithful. That's a good word. John left us with something really powerful. If we can simply get through the incredible, fantastic imagery of Revelation to get to this simple truth, it can change us. And it can change the church. And it can change the world. And we can help bring about heaven on earth now. Friends, that's our charge. That's our call. That's our opportunity. And it's our responsibility. What we are doing here should not stop here. What we do today when we study and we think and we consider and we pray should always send us out to make sure that every person hears our invitation because we have not earned any of the grace and the love that we have received, which means every other person out in the world does not need to earn grace and love either. We have been empowered. We have been filled by the Spirit to go out and to invite everyone in. Everyone gets to take this water of life as a gift. They simply have to say yes. And that's a yes we can all make. All right, my friends. It has been a privilege to study with you this year. I think Revelation was a real gift this school year to me in a surprising way, and I hope it has been for you as well. I wish you a wonderful summer. I will miss seeing you on Wednesday mornings, uh, but know that we will be back, and we'll be back with a great study next fall. Stay tuned. We'll post on our website, put it in the magazine. You'll get the email with the schedule, and I look forward to seeing you for this Bible study once again in the fall. Until then, stmichael.org slash rbs has all of the videos and four years of audio study that I would love for you all to use as inspiration this summer to stay faithful in your walk with Christ as we walk together. Until then, God bless you all. Bye.